The Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others, because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. Today, we're privileged to be speaking with Dr. Brooke Williams. She is an internal medicine physician currently practicing in North Carolina. Dr. Williams, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Really excited about today and uh, your podcast is great. So I can't wait to kind of share my story with all of your audience. So Dr. Williams, why don't you uh, start by telling us a little bit about yourself, who you are and uh, your background? Yeah, of course. Uh, So I'm Dr. Brooke Williams. I am from North Carolina, North Carolina native. Um, I am currently practicing in North Carolina as a hospitalist. Um, I trained in Chicago, did my residency at Princeton Health, which is located in the South Suburb of Chicago, specifically Olympia Field, Chicago Heights area. Uh, prior to doing residency, I did my medical degree at Campbell University, being part of the first class graduating from there. Uh, Campbell's located in North Carolina, halfway between Raleigh and Fayetteville, between Boogie's Creek, but no one even knows where that is. Um, and prior to that, I uh, went to Hampton, got a master's in medical science, and then prior to that, I went to North Carolina State University, not being used with that god awful blue down the street. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no wolf pack, uh, so I got yeah, my undergraduate So, when did you first decide to become a physician? I decided to become a physician uh, when I was in eighth grade. I, I unfortunately got sick myself, and so I was always, you know, in out of the hospital or going to her regular appointments. And I just, you know, decided literally from that day forward, I was going to go into medicine. So that's just been the, the dream. And well, I, fortunately, I was able to accomplish that. And at NC State, what was your major? So I majored in psychology. Uh, you know, in high school, I was always interested in psych. I did AP psych, which I felt like most people, you know, did. But I wanted to make sure it was something that I enjoyed because, you know, as being pre-med, we all do the same, you know, classes. We have to do that regardless. So why not do something that you enjoy in addition to, you know, getting uh, those prerequisites? Because, you know, what if you end up just not liking it? Uh, but you want to also be able to bring a different flavor to the table. You know, we're all pretty much the same and academically gifted and can take all the same classes. So you want to make sure you can, you know, bring something to your patient experience, you know, in the long run or even just have something different to talk about when you, you know, go to these medical interviews and residency And then coming out of undergrad, you know, a lot of people are starting to do post-bacs or master's programs. Can you talk about that program at Hampton University, the other HU? Um, tell yeah. us about this program and... and <laughs> what it did for you. Yes, uh, so I did go to Hampton, the other AQ, as they call it, uh, aside from Howard. Uh, but yeah, it was a post-bac program uh, that I was able to get my master's degree as well. Um, in the transition from undergrad to uh, medical school, I uh, decided to, you know, pursue an alternative degree because one, student loan, you know, everyone is very familiar with that. Um, and if you do a certificate, uh, federal loans will not, you won't be covered with federal loans. Just hmm. put that out there. Uh, so I said, well, uh, I need to find a program that I can, you know, take semester courses and also, um, you know, get a degree. So Camden offered that. 
I met some of my best friends there. Uh, a lot of people were pre-professional, whether it be veterinarian, pharmacy, dentistry, or uh, medical. Um, so, you know, we're all in there, same grind. And two years in between the first and second year, I actually uh, did NED, which is a summer enrichment program held at USC. Um, and essentially, in, in the nine-week summer program, you actually take the same exact courses that you do um, as your first walk in medical school, same professor, same test, everything. So if you do well in that, it kind of helps. Sometimes you can matriculate into USC's uh, medical school the following year. Um, it's a great recommendation and just, again, a, a great overall booster. I highly recommend the program that still exists now. So if anyone is listening and, you know, kind of stuck at what should I do in between or not traditional student, I highly recommend, you know, time well spent finding some type of summer program. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm sure very helpful. Um, I know as I was coming out of college, I kind of had an extra year between applying to medical school. So I was able to do a master's program as well and definitely helped me during the applications process. Oh, absolutely. I would, you know, I think a lot of people think a lot to be on this timeline, kind of start out of undergrad and then go to the medical school. You know, you don't want to be, like, I don't know, 27. You know, and that's still very young. A lot of times now, I think medical school is for the non-traditional students. You have to be very mature going to, you know, medical school is a lot of sacrifice. So. so, Dr. Williams, as you were coming out of this master's program, you were putting in applications to medical school. What led you to pursue a doctor of osteopathic medicine degree versus the allopathic uh, MD? So, to be honest, uh, prior to applying to Campbell, uh, I had never heard of osteopathic medicine. Um, actually, uh, during MBD, they had a um, what's it called when medical schools come out and basically give their pitch like there. Uh, during that summer, and Campbell was there, and they were like, oh, you know, we're going to be opening up a brand new school. Uh, and, again, I, I didn't know that it wasn't an allopathic program. I just went to them and started talking to some of the ladies, and I felt like we had a good connection, and I was like, okay, I'll check them out. Um, and then I started, they started to tell me kind of what their philosophy was and that they were osteopathic. Uh, and then I started doing my research, and I was like, hmm, it kind of lines up with, you know, some of the things that I would like to do. Um, but for me, I did apply to both allopathic and osteopathic programs. Uh, but when it all, you know, boiled down to was what was going to be the best school that was going to be compatible for me to give me what I needed, whether it be allopathic or osteopathic. I knew at that point I did want to come back to North Carolina. Um, so when I got that, you know, first yes, and it actually I ended up being Campbell, I actually came from other interviews. That was that was it for me. I knew that's where I needed wow. to be, and yeah, uh, they had sold me, and I, you know, don't regret it. Being part of the first class is very special, and to this day, you know, I'll call anybody up there, and they would do anything for me. The donors, our school was completely paid for. Uh, of course, the president at that time was, you know, very invested in our education. They still are, because being part of the first class and you know, three years of residency, people who did like internal medicine or family medicine, um, we just finished residency and, you know, got our board certification. So we really are the full circle of them being able to do the fruits of their labor. So. It's got to be an incredible experience. Not many people can say that they were the inaugural class of a medical school. 
So as a doctor of osteopathic medicine, you know, I know there's some additional things you guys learn in your curriculum. And, uh, you know, how has that impacted your, your practice during residency or even now? So in residency, uh, we did still have to uh, do some O&M um, kind of, I guess, lab in a sense. For inpatient medicine, unfortunately, it is somewhat difficult to kind of translate uh, using ONC. We did have at my hospital and uh, I did have a physician who would be put him on consult. He would actually come and treat uh, patients inpatient. Um, and, and Dr. They, Williams, could, yeah. could you uh, explain uh, OMT yeah. and OMM? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So OMT is for osteopathic medicine treatment our techniques and essentially what we do is look at the body alignment and we're able to kind of correlate that to certain disease processes uh, using different uh, manipulations and heart bindings which is like you know we're able to build the different tissue textures uh, if there's some type of bone alignment even looking at how someone walks things of that nature the best way to kind of put it in layman's terms with <laughs> a lot of uh, of my professors in medical school that really like this, but you know, the mixture between a chiropractor and a physical therapist is kind of, you put the points <laughs> together, and that's kind of what, how you, I would best describe, you know, OMT to someone outside of uh, osteopathic medicine. But in that, you know, in medical school, we actually have OMM as a separate class on top of the traditional. Uh, courses that you would take as a um, allopathic student. Um, so we have that additional class and a lab. Uh, so it's about almost a couple hundred more hours of additional schoolwork that we do. Wow. Um, and so, you know, going into residency, if you go into a traditional osteopathic program, which uh, just for some of the listeners now, you know, there's only one governing uh, body over residencies now, including four, which is ATVME. Uh, we merged with AOA. AOA still does stand. It does not go away. But prior to that, there was think, allopathic and osteopathic programs. And with the osteopathic residency programs, they did still keep that component of OMT so that you wouldn't lose out on your skills. Because with anything... Okay. Uh, if you don't continuously practice it, you will lose your tactile ability. You know, I still can do something, but I'm definitely not as sharp as I was in, you know, medical school because I didn't continue to do that. There are people who gotcha. can go and actually do an OMT-focused uh, fellowship. And, I mean, people who do OMT as, like, a clinic and that's their sole thing, I mean, they are booked three to six months out. It is. Wow. Difficult and seasonal because you know it, it. I wouldn't say it's a substitute. I think it's an adjunct way of treating patients. You know, sometimes in traditional Western medicine, uh, it's not enough, or they maybe want to try something different. Uh, it's just another tool in our back pocket, which a lot of osteopaths say. You know, OMT is an extra tool that we have and are trained on. Um, and a lot of people who do PMR, uh, orthopedic. Uh, doc, uh, a lot of them are osteopathic trained, so kind of a nutshell. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's good. It sounds like a, a really good blend between the um, the typical, you know, 
uh, allopathic medicine training. And then, like you said, having an extra tool has been, must be very helpful for different patient populations. And then you mentioned, uh, so during your residency, you said there was an osteopathic physician who would come in and do um, these procedures? Yeah, so he would actually come in. So I actually remember one time at an ICD patient and, you know, being inpatient in any level, if you're lying in bed or even at home, you know, guys, if you're lying in bed, you get more fatigue, you get more lazy, you don't want to get out, you have a lot of muscle wasting. And, you know, we have physical therapy uh, coming to patients, you know, while they're uh, hospitalized. But having someone actually can be OMT where, one, you can help with their physical deconditioning, but also help with medical management of a certain disease process is, you know, an extra star, golden star added to their chart. And so if someone can actually come and do that bedside, of course, the patient has to be, you know, appropriate. We're not saying every person in there. And a lot of people look at it as like, you know, I guess cracking of the neck is one of the big things that people are like, oh, can crack my neck. We're not going to do that to a frail person, right? But there has to be, you know, there's certain guidelines that the, you know, use common sense. But essentially, there's something that we can do. A lot of, you know, there have been studies out there that physical touch with the patient produces better outcomes. And patients feel, you know, better treated. And as an osteopath, we were trained to do that. Like, you know, even I come in and I'm sitting bedside, touching someone's shoulder, it just shows that empathy. I think we're able to transla- translate that to our patient care. Um, so, again, it, I think just even like the small things that we learn during medical school, I can still use, whether it be big or small, uh, and use that with patient care. So, Dr. Williams, as you were, you recently finished up uh, residency, like you mentioned, so you came out. What were you looking for when it came to finding a job? Wow. So, obviously, you know, just like you said, it is a job, so you look at salary. This is not volunteer work. Um, (laughs) But, uh, you know, you have to look at that salary versus uh, overall lifestyle and what do you want, at least for the first 12, 18 months, because I was told that a lot of times people do, you know, their first job, you kind of really see what you want to look into for. Because in residency, everything is going to probably be better than when you're a resident, right? So you really yeah. don't have nothing to compare. But when you're out in the real world, and I didn't get it in soft start, maybe two or three weeks in, to really kind of see what my attendings were saying, you know, being, uh, a hospital employee and how some of the, the, the positive things about it and some of the negative things about it. And I, I like inpatient medicine. I like the 717 all schedule, the shift work, the block work. So it definitely gave me flexibility. I can travel. Um, I could, you know, coming up weekend, I'm going to my family or a couple weeks I'm going to, going to Chicago. So it definitely gives me flexibility in that. So I knew I wanted that. And then also right now I'm actually uh, relocated back to North Carolina and I'm actually living with my parents and able to save up for the next year uh, so then I can really be able to go where I want and put myself in a great financial position. So I was um, highly advised by my peers, some of my mentors, and you know, my financial advisor if I could stay with my parents to do so. Uh, just think of, you know, really where it could be. 
uh, in the next year, you know, it, it would definitely put me in a, a place that most people take, you know, three to five years to get to do because I'm just saving money. So. You mentioned a financial advisor. Yeah, yeah. How long have you had one of those? So I've had a financial advisor actually since the end of my fourth year of medical school. I was very, uh, my, my dad was always uh, big on me saving money and making sure that I was uh, responsible with, you know, spending. And because we come out with a hefty dollar amount, uh, me having my uh, master's degree, which was the private, coming from private institution, and then medical school, which is private, I owned a lot in student loans. So I needed to make sure mm-hmm. that I was set up, you know, even with doing, I use Doctors Without Quarters, which is a, uh, a student loan um, uh, company that specifically helps people who are in the medical degree and how to, you know, set up your student loans so that you are making the smart decision based off of where you protect to see yourself in the next five, ten years. And so I was able to use them along with Larson Financial, uh, financial planning services to help me with my student loans and also my personal financial goals. And so I started head on. Like my first month of residency actually had a zero dollar payment that people talk about and it counted. Like I made sure all my stuff was lined up. I didn't wait because I didn't want to, you know, wait until some people didn't start that until December. They were like, eh, I'll get to when I get to it. No, because I didn't mm-hmm. want it. That's, those, those are payments that are going towards my 120 consecutive payments. So why would I give away free money or zero dollar payments, you know? So I've always yeah. been, you know, very diligent and staying on top of my finances. Um, and it's great, you know, it, it doesn't matter. Well, I'm take that. it does matter who your financial advisor is, but I definitely say start early and be searching those people because it's just like any other relationship. You have to build trust because, you know, these people are giving you financial advice that can definitely affect you positively or negatively in the long run. And even the short term. Yeah. yeah, that's good to know. So, Dr. Williams, as you were transitioning from uh, residency to practicing on your own, what were some things that you learned along the way that you, you didn't really uh, know were going to be an issue? Let's see. So, I think the first day jitters because, you know, now I don't have to be like, oh, I'll just let me get back to my attending, you know, some buffer. If you have that difficult patient, difficult family, um, you definitely will have. And I still have, you know, nurses who might challenge you who've been in the game, quote, unquote, longer. And, you know, there are, I will not say, there are things that they have seen that I have not seen because medicine is an art. It's about seeing patients after patients after patient, years and years of practice. You finish residency, and I think they say you know about 60, maybe 70% of total medical knowledge. You're, I'm a constant, you know, learner, and I tell people that. Even, you know, my patients, you know, like, huh, I never heard of that. Let me look it up and don't let your pride, asking colleagues. But definitely being okay with not knowing the answer. I think that was one of my biggest fears being attending because you know, when you're attending, it's like you know it all. The bug stops yeah. you, right? So kind of with that transition and then also knowing that I know what I know. You know, like don't let someone second guess your knowledge. You, you train for this, you know. Common things are common. Don't let someone talk you out of, you know, what your gut is telling you. We have that intuition for a reason. Um, and if something does not feel right, or if you know, no, I've seen this, I know this, 
go with your gut instinct. And I think I've been able to kind of build up a confidence in saying no. This is, you know, what I'm going with. My recommendation is sticking with it. And honestly, not just by the standard, right? So, you know, I think this yeah. learning to build that confidence, which takes time. It, it, it didn't definitely come up for the first day, uh, first six weeks. You know, it, I remember my program director telling me the first six months of residency, I mean, out of residency or as you're attending, is one of the hardest transitions. That's the why. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. And it's something that one can really prepare you for. You know, no one can prepare you for it. It's just experience. You just gotta, gotta go out there and see the swim, and you'll, you'll swim. You will. Knowing that you've been trained for this, you know, you put in the hard yeah. work, just like any, you know, athlete preparing to go to the Olympics, you train for this. You know, you're going to be nervous, but no one can really prepare you for that day until you do it. Absolutely. And the medical education system, with all of its flaws, does do a remarkably good job of preparing you for that job, you know, with 12 years of education, essentially, to get to where you are. Right, right. And there's always resources, guys. Like, you know, I I utilize up to date. Like, again, don't let your pride get the best of you. If you need to look up something, look it up. If you have a patient asking something and you don't know, I think that my patients, that's when I say I don't know. Yeah. And it's okay. Because don't make up something. That's when you'll really get yourself to sign. Good. Good stuff. So, Dr. Williams, in addition to your um, incredible progress through the the field of medical education and, and your work in healthcare, on the side, you're also deeply invested in giving back to the community and helping build that generational knowledge and understanding of the healthcare system and, and helping diversify medicine. And to that end, you started Color of Medicine. Yeah. Tell us about this organization. Yeah, Color Medicine. Um, shout out to Desiree Beach. She's my co-founder. Uh, one of our best friends in Chicago. So, as I was uh, saying before, we or Desiree came to me with this idea in June. Uh, not June, I'm sorry. Uh, November 2018. Uh, we were both highly invested in increasing minorities in medicine. She has a PhD, so the STEM component. Um, I was involved at CMA when I was in medical school. Um, and that, uh, attack an undergrad, kind of taking it back. And so I've always been, you know, dedicated and just wanting to help increase minorities, um, and underrepresented, and even the underrepresented, uh, populations as well. And the way to kind of help merge that gap and, uh, help literacy as well is we have to put in people who look like us and, into these fields so mm-hmm. that we can help better serve the community. So we started, uh, came up with the idea of color medicine in June of 2019. We got our 501c3, um, and then we were able to start doing table talk, uh, where we actually went in classrooms and telling our stories, kind of like what I'm doing now. Um, and this spring, we actually were fortunate enough to link up with Northwestern. They had freshly donated a lot of funds and we've had, you know, we did a Giving Tuesday this past December where we had a lot of our friends and family and colleagues donate to Color Medicine so we started a lab series and with the lab series we've actually been able to do virtual labs with third grade students, kindergartners, and Chicago Public School Health, uh, Chicago Public School System 
and we gave them a tour of Desiree's uh, actual lab at Northwestern. We did several lab experiments with them, uh, and the kids come and pick up the kids from their classroom, from their uh, teachers, and then they take them back home, and they were all on, they used Google Me, but essentially, you know, kind of like Zoom, we can see each other, and they do the experiments with us. We ask them questions, teachers are able to incorporate the different lab points and back into their curriculum. So we're actually able to see, you know, full circle, and then they're actually able to see people that look like them. And, you know, young black females, we've actually had a couple males show interest. So it's not just specifically female-driven, but, you know, any minority, male or female, getting them interested. It, you know, sometimes it just takes that one time of seeing someone kind of spark an interest. Mm -hmm. And saying, oh, I didn't know that. Or I can be like that. And I even tell people that going back to residency, I, I did a neurology rotation, which I, this kind of a background in home medicine and neurology are two different uh, residencies. But in internal medicine, we do have to do a neurology rotation. Hated neurology as a medical field. I thought that was going to be the flash. <laughs> that was going to, you know, I was not going to go. You know, graduate from medical school, but anywho, so I took that my last year, uh, or did the rotation my last year residency, and I had this mom attending. She has her PhD, her MD, and when I say she was soft, black female, I mean, I was I was just at all. And to someone who, you know, was self-finished residency, I was like, hmm, maybe I could have done this. And, you know, I looked at her, I'm sure how younger generations forget me uh, just that yeah. one, you know, that one time that you just need to see someone kind of admire how they carry themselves, how you could do that. I think it's important. That's good. Um, so how many folks have you been able to impact thus far with the organization? So I think that to date we have been able to impact over 100 students. Um, and that's just with like the lab series. Now, as far as the table talk, God, it, it has to be over 100 as well. I mean, we were literally sometimes over the summer just doing a virtual panel. Uh, I did one with Campbell. Um, we did a couple with uh, Northwestern Sky High program. I did another one with a uh, medical school, uh, Michigan. Uh, so we, we are constantly being asked. Uh, be part of our panels and again share our stories. But obviously, you know, I love to talk, so that is really easy for me to do. <laughs> that that is incredible, and the fact that two people can have this big of an impact on society and the next generation of physicians and scientists is is amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, we are. You know, our doors are always open. We are definitely looking for people to join as members, volunteers. So. Please check out colormedicine.com. Have some more information. Projects that we've done, things that we are doing in the future. Um, we have an Instagram page as well, colormedicine underscore tm. Check that out as well, and there's the link just right there on our bio, so you can click get to the website. Yeah, and I'm sure uh, there's a way to donate to the organization on that website as well. Absolutely, yeah. Dr. Williams, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for sharing your story, your journeys, and your struggles. Thank you for telling us about this amazing organization, Color of Medicine, and how we can get involved. How can folks 
find you and watch your progress and, and watch and learn and see the things that you're up to? So, um, feel free to follow me on Instagram, uh, Dr. Who are for Um, and same panel for Facebook. I feel free to listen to recently, especially to my stories. And then again, for Color Medicine, our website is colormedicine.com. And then our Instagram handle is colormedicine underscore TX. Awesome. Dr. Williams, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Bradley. I really appreciate this. and appreciate you, you know, having this podcast out there. I think it's much needed. And uh, definitely will be sharing uh, more about this in my amazing story. The Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. Tune in next week.